Psalm 32, this is God's word, good, beautiful, and true, of David, a masculine. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for night and day. Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped like in the heat of summer. Amen, right? Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while that you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by a bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that in it you show us who you are. You show us what matters. So I pray that you would show us who we are in you this morning, that you would teach us, Lord, what it means to take you seriously at your word. Moved by your spirit to show us the riches of the gospel and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our hearts would come to love him all the more. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there was a video a few years ago, and I saw it again recently, and it's a man and a woman sitting on a couch, and they're talking. And it's zoomed really close to him when it starts. And it's very clear that the woman is going through something stressful, maybe at work, and she's trying to process. She's talking out loud, and the guy's sitting there, and he's understanding what she's saying. And she says this, there's all this pressure, you know, and sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. It's like I can literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And what scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. And the guy's looking at him and he's looking back. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your forehead. And the camera zooms out and she has a literal nail sticking out of her forehead. You have a nail in your forehead. And she says, it's not about the nail. It's not about the nail. Stop trying to fix it. You always do this. You always try to fix it when what I really need for you to do is listen. And he says, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just saying that if you took the nail out of your forehead, you might feel a little bit better. And it goes back and forth. I know this is a kind of ridiculous question, but what would you do if you had a nail stuck in your forehead? If you literally had a nail in your forehead, Cooper would pull it out, I just saw. Would you cover it up and try to... You know, change your hairstyle or wear a hat so people don't notice it. No, you wouldn't do that. Would you pretend it's not there? You can't do that. It's a literal nail. Catch on every sweater and shirt you put on. Would you take an aspirin and try to relieve the pain? No, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't start pointing out the nails in other people's foreheads. No, you would deal with the nail. You've got to deal with the nail. We have an issue in our hearts that is much deeper and much more of an issue the nails and foreheads. We have the problem of sin. We have the accumulation of wrongs. Sin. It's a big word. We tend to define sin as wrong actions that we do, and it is that. That's true. 
But it runs much deeper than that. There's a reason why Scripture uses so many different images to talk about sin. It talks about it as transgression of God's law. That's absolutely what it is. But it also talks about sin as a, as a power at work that enslaves us. It talks about uh, it, it as a power that mars us to the point that we, uh, it even speaks of us as being spiritually dead and in need of being awakened and made alive. It speaks of it as a darkness that blinds us and colors our under- and, 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 and makes our understanding gone. And all those images, the, the multitude of those images, I think it's pointing to the fact that there is not a single part of us that has not been impacted by sin. Our head, our hearts, our hands, the things we do, the things we long for, the things we think, they're all marred by sin and its effects. So the question is not whether we have sin. We absolutely do. And the question is not whether we're impacted by sin. We absolutely are. The question is, when it comes to the issue of sin, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do with sin? And that's what Psalm 32 in part answers. And so we're going to break this up into a couple different sections as we always do. And the first one's this. What do we do with our sin? Now there's a number of ways that we tend to deal with sin as human beings. Um, the first is we, we keep it. We hold on to it. Um, this is kind of the idea of like we hold on to it. We don't admit it to God, to ourselves, or anybody else. Or maybe we admit it to ourselves, but definitely not nobody else. We cover it up. We hold on to sin. And David speaks about that in verse 3 when he's talking about he was silent. He was silent. Maybe he thought if he kept his mouth shut, it would just go away on its own. He would just hold it and keep it. But what does he discover? He says he kept silent and it ate him up inside. He uses big uh, descriptions, big imagery here. He, his bones wasted away. That he was groaning in agony. That his strength was sapped like the heat of summer. I said amen a second ago because you know what I'm talking about. Sin is chaos and it creates chaos. And when we try to hold on to it, it tears us up. When we try to hold on to it and deal with it ourselves, we will become eat up with guilt about things we've done and shame about who we are. So that's one way we tend to deal with it. Another way we tend to do is uh, we will put blinders on and pretend it's not there. This isn't just holding on to it and trying to deal with it ourselves and keep it hush-hush. This is pretending that it is not there. We refuse to see it. David speaks about this in verse 9. He's, he's, talk, he's talking about people acting like a mule with no understanding. But of course that doesn't make sin go away because when we ignore sin, we can't ignore its effects. It's like getting a terrible diagnosis at the doctor. Nothing better happens if we pretend it's not there. If we get this bad, bad diagnosis and we just pretend it's not there, it's going to get worse. It doesn't go away on its own. Or maybe we don't keep it, or maybe we don't ignore it. Maybe we embrace it and persist in it. And he talks about that in verse 10. Many are the woes of the wicked. The wicked in the Old Testament is almost, a tech, uh, it's almost technical terminology. Um, it's a category of people who persist in, in mistreating others and disregarding God. They chase power and money and fame and notoriety. They wound others, and in doing that, they wound themselves. So we can't hold on to sin. We can't ignore it. We can't persist in it. 
Those are all dead ends. They lead to destruction. And none of it is what God has for us. But the truth is, friends, that we can't do anything with our sin. We can't atone for it. It's too big. We can't make things right. That's kind of too far gone. If the problem of sin is a 10-foot wall we need to climb, we've got a 3-foot ladder. So the question is not, what can we do with our sin? The question is my second point here. What does God do with our sin? We sang about it earlier. God is holy. Holy is this picture that God is perfect. He has no lack. He's clean. And there's a reason why the Bible, when it speaks about his glory, it speaks about light. Because it's reaching for the best imagery the human language can find to describe purity. God, is his glory is light, and it speaks of him as life. And sin is the opposite of all these things. Sin is not holiness. It is staining. It is tainting. It is darkness and death. Sin's not only the opposite of God, though. It's direct defense against him. It's rebellion against him. So, in truth, we are not only stained and affected by sin in our hearts, we are guilty before God. Yet, even though he's holy... And we're not. And even though he is righteous and we are guilty, God invites us to bring our sin to him. Now, I say that every week, but I want you to stop and take a moment to think about how strange that sounds. Because it's easy for us to think about worship as us bringing our best to God. I mentioned that before. We dress up. We wear our Sunday best, right? We bring our best to God. And so if we're you know, I'm going to give 10%. No, I'm going to give 11% of my income. I'm going to bring my absolute best to him. I'm going to sing my best. I'm going to put my best foot forward. But as Isaiah 64, 6 says, before God, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Maybe you've heard that verse before. Our righteousness, our good deeds in front of God and his holiness are like filthy rags. And that's actually a pretty tame translation. What that literally says is that before God, our righteous deeds are like menstrual pads that have been used. God sees us clearly. He knows the depth of our sin better than we do. He knows the darkness that traps us. He knows that we are guilty. But with all of that knowledge, he invites us to bring to him our worst. So the question, again, is no longer what we do with our sin, but what God does with our sin. So when we bring our sin to him, when we bring our worst to him, what does he do? Verse 1, he forgives us. He covers our sin. Verse 2, he does not count our sin against us. Verse 5, he forgives our guilt. Verse 6, he hears our prayer. Verse 7, he becomes our hiding place, our protection from trouble. He sings over us. Verse 10, the Lord's unfailing love surrounds those who trust him. And in verse 11, you may see the song he sings over us and that unfailing love that surrounds us pulls a song out of us so that we are no longer those who just have sins to confess. We are those who have have our cleansed mouths open to praise the glorious and holy God. You see, there's a progress happening in this psalm. At the beginning, you have sins that need to be forgiven, and you go from someone who is guilty before God, who has spat in his face, in a sense, to someone who is cleansed and forgiven, to someone who is heard when you pray, 
to someone who has found God not as a condemning judge, but as a hiding place, as our protection, as God's singing over us, and we become those who are surrounded by the unfailing love of God. God takes our guilt. But there's a question. How does he do this? Is it God just taking out his cosmic God magic wand and saying, forgive him? No. Because sin is not just a matter of something wrong happening. It's a matter of justice. God's holy. And it means he has to punish sin. And that feels like a dead end for us. And the reality of that is illustrated in the Old Testament system that God gave Israel. Think about this. So if you've ever read through all the laws of the Old Testament, your eyes can glaze over. It can feel like a very foreign thing. But God gave this system of laws to the nation of Israel thousands of years ago. And you may have noticed, if you've ever read through, as it's giving laws about how you interact with your fellow Israelite, just putting you back in that place, there's a principle that undergirds all of that legal system. It, It is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The idea is there's supposed to be equity. A punishment should be punished by uh, something that fits it. And so if you've robbed your fellow Israelite and you've stole his oxen, you have to return the oxen and then pay them a reparation to make things right. It's a principle of justice, right? Punishments fit crimes. It's a social recognition that when someone is wrong, they should be paid back, right? But when it comes to God... In this system, when it comes to God and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it becomes almost like a long running tab of sin against him. There's justice for everybody in the Old Testament law that was set up, but there's no justice for God. Think about it. He, the eternal God, the creator of all things, who is offended and (laughs) sinned against constantly, what does he get? Some measly sacrifices, a bull, a lamb, some grain. There's no justice for God in the Old Testament. That's like trying to pay your mortgage with monopoly money. God instituted, though, the sacrificial system as an arrow pointing forward because all of those sacrifices were almost like IOUs that would be eventually paid off. And the good news is that those IOUs are paid off not by those who committed sin. Those IOUs, all those sacrifices that could not make things right, pointed forward to the one sacrifice that could, Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus for us was God providing a way for him to punish sin and its guilt rightly in a way that removes it from us so that we are not swept up in the judgment against our sin. The cross of Jesus was God satisfying his justice by substituting himself. It's this glorious exchange. And so the cross of Jesus becomes the place where God's mercy and God's justice meet, and both are satisfied. And the good news of that, friends, is that there is no more sin for us. When we come to Jesus by faith, there is no more sin left to punish. None. The guilt for our sin is gone. We bear it no more. When we bring our sin to God and Christ, He takes it for us, from us, and 
And there is zero condemnation for us. It's an impossibility. As sure as God is God, there is no condemnation for us in Christ. The holy God becomes what our hiding place. As strange as that can sound, he hears us, he sings over us, he surrounds us with unfailing love. All in Jesus. So instead of holding on to our sin and letting it eat us up inside, we can confess our sin to God. We are freed from holding on to some false sense of righteousness. We are freed from playing the game of religion. We can stop wearing the costumes that we hide behind and we can truly be seen and known. We can realize that even though we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, we are far more loved in Jesus than we could ever dream. And that brings me to my last section here, what it means to live this truth out. So sin's no longer our master. Jesus redeems us from sin. So it's no longer this domineering master over us, and we're no longer under its domineering power. We now belong to Jesus. And that means he gives us his life-giving spirit, and we're no longer stuck in sin. But we also must remember this, that while we may not be under sin's domineering power, we will always struggle with sin's influence as long as we're here on earth. Until Jesus makes all things new, we are going to struggle with temptations, and sometimes we're even going to give in to them. We're going to struggle with sin's influence. It's going to happen. And the question is, when we do sin, what do we do? We need not fear any condemnation. God does not have some system set up, and I think I've said this before, where if you mess up and mess up big, you need to like start a stopwatch and say, okay, I need to feel really bad about this for seven days and wallow in guilt and shame, and then I can come to Jesus and find forgiveness and grace. That's not it. Now, sin's the worst thing in the world. This is not God giving us a license to go do all the things we want. Sin is the worst thing in the world. It is incredibly destructive and powerful. But when we fail, as those who are in Christ, we need not fear condemnation. Remember, no condemnation in Christ we can come to God right away, right away. He's shown us the depth of his love for us in Jesus, and we can trust that he will continue to show his love for us. That love does not run out. That love was not dependent on you in the first place, your good or bad deeds, and it will never be dependent on you and your good and bad deeds. It is entirely grace. And so when we come in here and we confess our sins every week, it is not us starting over. It is like us continuing to take, to take the dose of medicine that the doctor has prescribed. It's not starting over. His love that moved heaven and earth to rescue you will not fail to follow after you all the days of your life. I'm a huge fan of the Jesus Storybook Bible. I hand them out like uh, candy to, to kids and stuff. I hand them out to adults too. Because they not only teach us how it not only teaches us how to read scripture, understand the thread that goes through, but it's just so poetic. And one of my favorite things is in the Jesus Storybook Bible. We've got free ones back there if you don't have one. Um, Sally Lloyd Jones, who wrote it, she translates what is referred to as God's unfailing love here, or maybe in an old uh, King James translation, you heard God's loving kindness or His covenant love. She describes it as God's never stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. 
That's his love for you. It's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever. And we have the invitation to live in that, to live like this gospel is true, because it is. Because now that we're freed up from condemnation, it means that we're freed up from living lives that are trying to prove something, trying to earn something. We are freed up to live lives that are committed to goodness, to beauty, to truth. We can obey God's commands now because we know those commandments cannot justify us and they can't condemn us, but they can lead us in wisdom. So now, because we're reconciled to the lawgiver, we're reconciled to God, we are changed in relationship to his commandments. We can see them as beautiful and good things that lead us in goodness, not as things that are measurement of our righteousness or not. What I'm getting at is this. We have to learn to live as people who believe and know that all of this is true. We have to learn to live as people who are not earning righteousness in front of God or any other people by what we do. But we rest. We rest and receive all that God has for us. And if he just declared us righteous, then we are righteous because his word counts more than anybody's. We have to stop trying to earn that. And living and dying by people's opinions of us. Thinking we've got to earn something in front of anybody else. You could do everything right for the rest of your life. And your plea in front of God and everybody else is that I am righteous in Christ. We have to start living like this is true. We have to learn to live like we have a love we did not earn and cannot lose. Because we do have that love. We have to let these truths shape how we think of ourselves and how we think of others, how we think of and treat other people. We have to internalize this truth. We have to ingest this truth and let it be the very center of who we are. I read a, a, a quote a few years ago from the poet Maya Angelou. She was talking about the influence of her grandmother on her when it came to faith. And she said this, I believe there was a God because I, told, I was told it by my grandmother and later by other adults. But when I found out I was God's child, when I internalized that, when I ingested that, I became courageous. I became courageous. Part of this, part of living out this truth is being turned toward others. Think about it. David wrote this song down, not just as a personal song of praise, but he wrote it down so that it would lead others and inspire others in worship. What David is saying in writing this down is for everybody who hears this psalm, listen to this good news. You, you who are guilty, you can be forgiven. You who are eat up with the darkness of sin, you can be free. You can bring your sins to God and walk in his love that surrounds you. Encouragement here, in part, and this is an amazing thing to think about, that when David writing this, he doesn't have to control who reads it. He doesn't have to keep his mouth silent about this great love for fear of who will hear it. He can declare it confidently to people he likes, and he can also declare it confidently to people he doesn't like, because God's grace is not a limited supply. 
It's not a pie, guys. God's grace is not a pie, and if somebody else gets it, we have a lesser, lesser peace. It's an unending, bubbling fountain of goodness that can never run out. God's grace for us is not diminished when somebody else receives it. And because of that, we are free to follow God's example and be a people that are not only marked by being forgiven, but people who are marked by forgiving others. We can pray what we pray in the Lord's Prayer and learn to live it out for our forgiveness to others to match God's forgiveness of us. And so we can be even turned toward those not only who have hurt us and forgive them, the glorious thing of God's grace is we can turn toward people that we have hurt. We can turn toward people that we have sinned against and pursue reconciliation, true reconciliation. And guys, this isn't just important for us individually. It is. This is the most crucial thing for us individually, but this is true for us as a whole. I think we all want to see transformation in our families. We all want to see transformation in our neighborhoods. We all want to see transformation and renewal in our, in our city. And the, the truth is, the only way that we will see that transformation as a church, that deep heart transformation that lasts, is when we stop playing religion. When we stop playing around and wearing religious costumes and stop trying to be respectable people. When we let go of the things we so often hold on to for our identity and security, and we open our hearts, we open our lives, we open our homes, we open our pocketbooks to others as a community of people whose defining feature is the grace of God and Jesus. If we want to see transformation happen in our families and in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our world, this is where it starts being people who take this seriously and are zealous to keep this gospel at the very center of who we are individually and the center of who we are as a church. There will be so many threats as our church grows for us to, 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 to institutionalize. Not that institutions are always bad things, but to, uh, uh, to, to take ourselves very seriously. There's going to be dangers as we grow to leave the gospel behind for other things, maybe political causes. There's a number of things it could be. But we have to be zealous about keeping this at the middle because if we truly want to see transformation happen, the only way it happens is through the gospel. That's it. So friends, don't hold on to your sin, but hold on to this truth. And this morning, open the ears of your heart to hear God singing over you and let that lead you to what it says in the last verse of this psalm. And I'll close with this. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, who are righteous by faith and not by works. Sing, all you who are upright in heart because your hearts have been cleansed by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for this glorious gospel. I thank you that even though sin is the worst thing in the world and you are the holy God whose justice must be satisfied that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to take our sin from us and our guilt for us, to wear it for us so that our sin might be judged rightly without it, us being swallowed up in the process. I thank you, Lord, that we are invited to live this truth out in the here and now and for the rest of our lives. So empower us by your Holy Spirit because if we try to do it in our own power, 
we will falter, but nothing is impossible with you, our God. So empower us to walk in this truth, to walk in grace, to be swept up in your generosity so that we will see in front of our very eyes you at work in this transformation happening in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our city. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.